Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Actually, there's no Amy today because this is a special edition of SBC This Week. I'm joined with a few of my friends from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the ERLC is on board here today. I've got Brent Leatherwood here in the studio with me. Brent, good to have you, man. Great to be here. I'm glad to be here with you in person. This is your debut on the podcast, I believe. Yeah, I don't it think is. you've been on before. Yeah, man, why hasn't that happened? I don't know, man. man. We should have taken it that long before. 350 now. episodes, and we finally <laughs> got you, though. So, hey, you know, another 350. We'll have you on before an episode 700, maybe. <laughs> so, um, that'll be good. And so, Brent, you serve as the acting president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. That's right. And uh, glad to have you work in the EC building here with us, the SBC building. So, we have lunch. We love Kava. On this podcast, we do love kava, and you love kava, and Man, I love that. I love kava, so, kava's so good. Next time, you fit y'all right are, in with the podcast. Yeah, when next time folks are here visiting either you or me, like we need to meet them at kava first, yes, absolutely, and, and then come back and get down to business. Also joining us on the podcast, Chelsea Soblick. She's the director of policy, works out of the the DC office there at the Leland House in Washington DC. Chelsea, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. So Chelsea also making her debut. This is also my yeah. uh, debut as well. Yep. Debut mm-hmm. on the podcast here. So, and then good friend of the pod, Elizabeth Graham, also here. Elizabeth is the vice president for life initiatives at the RLC. Hello. Thanks so much for having me again, Jonathan. It's great to be back. Uh, but Elizabeth, you've been on the pod before. We just had you on recently really talking about the, the new legislation out of Texas. I think we'll touch on that a little bit later and kind of a what now and what next for Southern Baptists as we look through pro-life initiatives. And a big piece of that pro-life initiative is the Psalm 139 Project. Every mother, every child, every heartbeat matters to God. In 2010, roughly 1,000 pregnancy resource centers provided about 230,000 ultrasounds at little or no cost. These ultrasounds introduced mothers to their children for the very first time. Most women in a crisis pregnancy who are given a glimpse of life within them choose life. However, this is only possible when women can go to a pregnancy center with an ultrasound machine. Sonogram machines are expensive, costing tens of thousands of dollars, and most crisis pregnancy centers do not have the funds to buy the equipment or have a medical expert on staff to read the output. You can be a part of giving to this critical, life-saving effort. When you donate to the Psalm 139 Project at erlc.com slash standforlife, 100% of your donation goes directly to ultrasound machine places. That's 100%. Every penny from the Psalm 139 Project goes to ultrasound placement. You can find out more at erlc.com slash standforlife. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show as well, but we are thankful here at SBC this week for the ERLC coming alongside of us because this is a big week, Brent, a massive week potentially in, in kind of not just the history of the United States with what's going on at the Supreme Court this week, but also just in evangelicalism and as it relates to the future of the United States and abortion. No, it, it absolutely is. And I think these oral arguments, this is, I was I was actually talking to a pastor recently about these oral arguments. These oral arguments and this particular case coming out of Mississippi represent the best opportunity in a generation to potentially overturn Roe versus Wade. And that's important. I think that's something all of us need to be attuned to in this moment. We need to be praying for. We need to be praying for wisdom uh, for our nine Supreme Court justices uh, as as they uh, now, once they receive these oral arguments, they, they go back to their chamber and really start sussing through competing priorities such as stare decisis and precedence and, and then what is actually 
uh, going to be good for the country. And obviously, we would submit that overturning Roe versus Wade, overturning uh, Casey, uh, those are very important. And the, the Supreme Court should do that. So as many of you may know, this Wednesday, December 1st, the Dobbs oral arguments will take place. Uh, that stems from a March 2018 law that was passed in Mississippi, the Gestational Age Act, which banned abortion after 15 weeks in Mississippi. That was later, the Jackson Women's Health Organization uh, later filed an appeal against that and, and got a, a court order to, to intercede in this and to basically rule it unconstitutional, and, and it's worked its way up to the Supreme Court. So that's where we are right now. It's it's called Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. That's kind of the the name that you're going to see this week. Anytime we talk about Dobbs, Dobbs, that's what right. you're you're going to hear. It's kind of like Roe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- that's the case that's being really kind of argued this week in Washington D.C. So, kind of a big week long thing going on at Baptist Press as well as at the ERLC's website. Uh, they're going to have all kind of information about that. Chelsea will tell us about that a little bit in a few minutes. But that's kind of where we are. We're we're on the precipice of a monumental Supreme Court arguments, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, that we've been kind of looking for. And like you said, once in a generation chance maybe to end Roe. And we'll talk about that a little bit later with Chelsea as well. But Chelsea, uh, let's bring you in here. Talk to us. Just give us kind of the overview real quick of why this is so important and what makes this the case that is the potential to overturn Roe. Um, So, Jonathan, like you said, uh, this week on December 1st, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments on that Mississippi law that you stated. That law, like you said, is called the Gestational Age Act, and it bans most abortions after 15 weeks. And the reason this particular case is so important, um, of course, we've had other um, Supreme Court oral arguments and cases being decided that touch on abortion. Uh, we just had um, a couple weeks ago oral arguments for the Texas heartbeat bill. While that case dealt with abortion, the underlying issues uh, were you know, states' rights and, and whether um, citizens uh, could be um, tasked with enforcement. But we've had other cases, um, such as the June medical services case that dealt with admitting privileges. And so we've seen a lot of um or a fair amount of uh, Supreme Court cases that deal with abortion. So why is this particular one different? Um, a couple of things to know about this particular um, Mississippi law, and then I will get into why this case is the one that so many people are watching in regards to Roe and Casey. Um, so this bill, uh, the, the Mississippi uh, bill, is actually patterned after a lot of the laws in Europe uh, that will ban abortion after a certain certain time, usually 15 weeks. The United States is actually one of only a handful of countries that allows for late-term abortions. Yeah, and 47 of 50 European nations like limit abortion after 15 weeks or prior to 15 weeks, right? Exactly. And to to highlight some of the other nations that allow for late-term abortion, um, two of those are China and North Korea. So it is extremely disgraceful. We're not that in we, good company. Not the um, company you want to be with there. Yeah, we're not in no. good company. Don't want to be on that list. No, no. Uh, we do not want to be on that list. Um, so why is this particular case um, so important and so different than the others? The reason is because this case is really hitting at the core of the Roe and the Casey um, decisions. So the Supreme Court um, is looking at the viability standard. So again, the Mississippi law says 
essentially after um, a child is viable at 15 weeks, um, elective abortion would be unconstitutional. I do believe the Mississippi law makes exceptions for life of the mother um, and um, some severe fetal abnormalities. Um, but other than that, it says it would ban all abortions. Um, so the the issues here are the, the viability and the questions that they're answering implicates the workability of Casey's undue burden standards. So kind of the two-pillar abortion <laughs> decisions were Roe versus Wade in 1973 and then in the early 90s, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, and Casey's undue burden standard relies on that arbitrary viability line. Um, so essentially, what's to say 15 weeks is the viability line or a viability line that allows for sex-selective abortions or different things like that? Um, so the reason this one is so, so important is, again, that viability is basically the key to to unraveling the undue burden standard. Yeah. Now, Elizabeth, just real quick, in your work with a lot of these pregnancy care centers through the Psalm 139 projects and the other initiatives that the RLC has related to life, why is the, the viability, why is that such a kind of a, a, a gray area? I mean, because it feels like viability today versus viability in 1989 are two different things. I mean, those are completely different, you know, because of the technology increases we've had as, as well as just medical advances and, and different things like that. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much for asking that question. It's a great one. I mean, you know, what, what we know today is very different from a science and technology standpoint than what we knew uh, 30, 40 years ago related to viability. Most individuals who uh, argue a higher uh, level of viability is based on the fact that they believe that the baby can't survive outside of the womb until a specific gestational age. What we would say in the pro-life movement is that life begins at conception and therefore life should be protected. And so what, we, what we're seeing with, uh, with the Dobbs case, and again, Chelsea is an expert on our policy front, so I will not try to get into any of that nuance, is this argument that viability is not uh, a much higher uh, or like 22, 25 weeks. Um, it's actually uh, much lower than that. So they're trying to move the viability, re really like move back the goalposts, if you will, um, back to 15 weeks, which is much more consistent internationally um, and more widely accepted. Obviously, we don't think that 15 weeks is enough, but every life saved is a life worth celebrating. And, and Chelsea, kind of coming over to you with the, the ERLC, y'all put a uh, amicus brief, signed on to an amicus brief in this case with a lot of different people. And in that, you talk about viability and saying that the choice of viability, using the viability as the kind of the benchmark there, it creates two classes of unborn children whose legal status depends on the ability of then-current medical technology to keep them alive. Why is that so important? Yeah, Jonathan. So the ERLC submitted an amicus brief to the court asking um, the court to overturn the precedents set in Roe and Casey, which were the, that viability standard. It's also important to note that Mississippi and their arguments 
in preparing uh, for the for this case have also asked the court to overturn um, the precedent set in Roe and Casey. So to your question, why is that important? You're right. It does essentially um, create two classes of preborn babies, one before the viability standard and one after. And again, like Elizabeth said, the medical technology just continues to develop um, and get better and better and better. So Technically, if we had that viability standard, it would just keep getting drawn back further and further and further and further. Um, So we're, again, asking the court to overturn those precedents. Again, we believe that life begins at conception, so... But the the way we make abortion both um, illegal, unnecessary, and unthinkable is kind of death by a thousand cuts. The way you cut down a tree is a thousand cuts. And so kind of every step we take to advance that goal of both protecting life in the womb and caring for um, mothers and and their uh, communities um, is important. And so— you know, while this, even in the best case scenario for um, for what could happen at the court, abortion's not going to be illegal in all 50 states. Abortion's not going to go away. We're still going to have abortion. So we need to be kind of clear-headed about that and realize even if the best thing happens with the Supreme Court, we will still have abortions and we need to think about how we respond to that. Well, and uh, let me just, you know, kind of add to what Chelsea was stating there. A a big part of what the Supreme Court has relied on in giving us this abortion regime that we live under is actually the the 14th Amendment, right? And and we all know that the 14th Amendment calls for equal protection. And so if if we're going to follow down that path of constitutional logic, then I think we want to bring that back to the court and say – you're you're relying on equal protection. We want equal protection for all lives, all these preborn lives. And, and so, you know, this is this is a, a instrumental part, I think, of how the court has arrived in the very murky place that it is with uh, abortion. I mean, we have to understand that Roe v. Wade, whether you are a pro-life constitutional scholar out there or an adamant pro-choice constitutional scholar. There is like unanimous agreement in the legal community that it's just it was just poorly decided and poorly written because essentially it was. I mean, you go read through that particular case, it was essentially the court creating legislation. Yeah. And and that's what a legislative body does. And so they have usurped uh, the ability of elected officials to to truly speak into this in any meaningful way. And then when given the chance to come back and correct this in Casey, they essentially just kind of switched up their rationale and then created uh, an exception for the health of the mother. Which you can drive a bus through. I mean, it is gigantic. And and so there's no meaningful way to actually, for an elected official, to submit something that helps uh, stand up for the the life of the preborn child. And and so that's, these are a part of all of the arguments uh, that are being made in these various amicus briefs that not only we have submitted, our, our pro-life allies have submitted, but also the Mississippi Attorney General has submitted. And if you're a bit of a constitutional uh, nerd like I am, uh, I would actually commend to you uh, Mississippi's amicus brief. It is incredibly well thought out. And it's just amazing to me that I think most people thought, oh, if we're if the pro-life community is, is going to get its act together and it's going to go right at the heart of Roe v. Wade, they would think it would be some, you know, major— uh, legislative act that essentially says, you know, abortion is outlawed completely. This actually is a is a 
pretty kind of common sense yeah. regulation that Mississippi has uh, has passed here. And but it is in fact it is going completely at the entire abortion regime that's yeah. been set up by the courts, and well, that's and, great. And also, this is not just the only one that's working through the courts. There are about forty different cases. Very similar to this, you mentioned, uh, I think it was Elizabeth mentioned the Texas heartbeat bill, or maybe it was Chelsea, mentioned the, the Texas bill that was just passed recently, and we had Elizabeth on. You can go back and look at that in the podcast. I'll put that in the show notes. We had Elizabeth on to talk about that and why that was such a big deal, because that was a, kind of one of the biggest laws that we've seen put in place regarding abortion. Uh, the, the, I remember whenever the Mississippi, this one that we're talking about here, whenever this came out, the uh, the Gestational Age Act. I remember whenever that came out back in 2018, that was a massive, massive law there. So we, we're getting more and more of this. And, and like I said, there are 40 others that are just kind of working their way through the courts. And I think they're all kind of waiting on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because it's, it's kind of the linchpin. Because well, well, where this it, goes, it'll yeah. it'll set the precedent that'll just kind of flow into those other cases. That With that Texas one, it could kind of go off on a trail of kind of procedural, who, who yeah. is allowed to prosecute. You yeah. know, this is the vehicle. If if we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey in, in this Supreme Court term, this is going to be the vehicle that yeah. does it. So we're approaching 49 years since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. So uh, 2022 is that, that 49th in January. I think we'll have that the 49th year of that, uh, you know, almost to 50 years. So, Elizabeth, is it possible we could see Roe be overturned before it turns 50? Jonathan, I think that is definitely a possibility. And I think we definitely pray and hope towards that end. Uh, that Roe is overturned. But I don't think that the court has a history of overturning major cases in a single swoop. What what we don't see historically with the Supreme Court is they completely overturn a previous ruling. What we anticipate is that the court will actually undermine the ruling, um, which will create the ability to partially dismantle Roe. And so do we hope and pray and long for the day that Roe is overturned? Absolutely, we do. But I think we also have to be prepared for the reality that Roe may not be overturned. They may choose to keep the status quo the same, or they may choose to partially dismantle Roe or create the ability to take apart Roe, which then pushes it back down to the states. And then what we'll begin to see sweepingly across the United States is the states that are much more conservative uh, in their pro-life laws and legislation will have very restrictive abortion laws like you see in Texas and Tennessee. But then you get up to the north and you see um, states like Illinois that have the most egregious abortion laws that uh, almost allow um, full-term and partial birth abortions. And so then the strategy for the pro-life movement changes. We'll need to adapt and change completely uh, because you will be having to work strategically by state um, to address intervention and saving lives. Yeah. And and that's kind of like the long game. Chelsea, back to you on this. Uh, You know, we're having oral arguments this week. When might we get some kind of a ruling one way or the other from the Supreme Court? 
Yeah. So um, real quick to tack on something uh, to your last question, and then I'll answer that question. So there have been at least 12 states, and we'll probably see more before we receive a ruling, um, who have passed what's called a trigger law. Um, So that if the Supreme Court did um, overturn Roe and Casey or strike at that in such a way, abortion would immediately become illegal in those states. And then there are states that have kind of the opposite of those laws that uh, if Roe and and Casey were overturned, um, uh, abortion would be much more readily available. So um, I think what Elizabeth said is extremely important. Um, This will go back to the states, and then um, the strategy will become much more of a state-by-state strategy. But to answer your question, um, it will likely be um, the very end of the term because this is a pretty, pretty monumental case, and the Supreme Court typically will release the bigger um, uh, opinions at the end of the term. So it'll probably be June when we receive a decision. So June 2022, kind of like what we saw with the Burgerfell just a few years ago, that like week after the SBC yeah. annual meeting kind of timing or whatever. So uh, for, for us in the Southern Baptist world, that could be a big couple of weeks there, having the annual meeting and then the possible, you know, maybe not overturned, but dismantling or partially dismantling of Roe if the decision goes favorably. It's going to be a huge opportunity as we gather in Anaheim, honestly, to sit together and pray for this, uh, what will likely be forthcoming decision. Uh, I mean, it, we we need to absolutely be thinking through a uh, way to do that. Now, Elizabeth, as we talk about kind of the the what now and what next related to this, I know you and I, we talked about this whenever you came on the podcast just a few weeks ago about uh, the, the law in Texas, you know, what, so what do we do until then? And, you know, what can we do now? What So what are some of the things that maybe the ERLC is doing as well as what can individuals do as we await maybe a ruling or just, you know, in, in states, maybe that, like Chelsea mentioned, those those trigger laws, they had those in effect that that if and when Roe is partially or fully dismantled, abortion does become illegal in those states. How can they best minister to women who find themselves maybe with pregnancies that in previous days would end in abortion? You know, what do we do then? Well, that's definitely a layered question, Jonathan, so I'm going to try to take it uh, one piece at a time. The ERLC is working on a multi-pronged strategy as it relates to what we've been calling the road to row 50, and that is this window of impact and opportunity that we believe that's before us as we look towards January 2023, which was Uh, the devastating 50-year anniversary of uh, the legalization of abortion in American culture and history. And so we have uh, been working one of the ways through our Psalm 139 project. So I know we talked about this a little on the podcast before, but our Psalm 139 project, it's a funding initiative designed to make uh, individuals uh, aware of the life-saving potential of ultrasound technology in crisis pregnancy situations. And what that amazing technology does, which we talked about a little bit earlier, it helps pregnancy centers minister to abortion-minded, abortion-determined women by providing them uh, an ultrasound scan um, for free to show them the life that's growing inside of their womb. And uh, we set a goal last year as a team. We believed that if the statistics are accurate, which is 80% of women who receive an ultrasound uh, choose life, 
then we absolutely must continue to prioritize the placement of ultrasound machines in crisis pregnancy centers all across the U.S. So we set a really lofty goal as an organization to place 50 uh, ultrasound machines in 50 pregnancy centers across the country by row 50. So if you know much about the history of the Psalm 139 project, uh, in the history of the initiative, which has been almost 21 years, we've placed uh, 21 machines total. So averaging about one a year. Well, I'm really, really excited to say through the partnership of Southern Baptists and some very generous donors, by December, we will have placed 25 machines in one year. So we are halfway through our goal of placing 50 machines by row 50. So Elizabeth, real quick on that. So 21 up until this year, you did 25 this year? We have done 25 this year. Wow. Mm. Yes. So 21 machines in 21 years. Yeah, we got three more coming up next week here across Tennessee. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so we are we are really excited. We we want we have some state conventions that we have been partnering with to partner with through uh, their efforts to serve their state. We love to partner with state conventions. Um, we've partnered with the Florida Baptist Foundation to place um, a machine uh, in Florida where there was a need there. They have a specific fund that's set up through the Florida Baptist Foundation uh, where churches can give to that fund. And 100% of those proceeds go towards the placement of that machine and the training uh, the limited liability training that's required legally to utilize that machine. And so dollar for dollar, uh, every penny raised for Psalm 139 goes to that saving babies. And what we know about Southern Baptists is Southern Baptists love to serve vulnerable moms in crisis and see babies' lives saved and families flourishing. And so I think it's a really exciting opportunity um, for people to give. So Elizabeth, how much does one placement cost? Like what, what's the grand total for, you know, you mentioned you're doing these. I know Brent was the other day, I saw a picture Brent was with the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, the other day placing one here in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, I believe it was Brent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what, what does that one placement cost? Well, it really depends. So what we do with Psalm 139 is um, we have someone who goes in and does an assessment of the center once the center has been vetted. So there is a vetting process um, that takes place. And once that vetting process has been completed and we identify, yes, the center meets the criteria um, and is also being supported by Southern Baptist churches, then what happens is the trainer goes in and then evaluates the center's needs. So the center could have different needs depending on where they are. They could need a mobile unit, They could need, if they're doing advanced imaging as well, they could need a 3D, 4D machine. But if they're doing early heartbeat detection, which is the majority of the machines that we place in centers are either stationary or mobile units, and they're doing early heartbeat detection, those machines average $26,500 for a machine which is roughly almost 60% off the market price is what we are able to place those for. And then the trainings um, for the limited liability training that we do, which is the nurses training that we provide at no cost to the center also, 
can range anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000. And that's solely based on how many nurses need to be trained and the number of days and hours that are required for the training. So you'll see the number become higher if there's four or five nurses um, or even larger than that. We did a placement here in Knoxville, Tennessee. They got two machines. They're seeing over a thousand clients a year and they have a large number of nurses that needed to be trained. So we provided all of that for them at no cost to the center so that they can continue to utilize their resources to serve in specific ways. And we can generously give them this ultrasound machine technology. That's right. And so uh, let me just kind of underscore there. So, hey, if anyone, if you've just got a simple dollar that you want to donate to help save lives, we will take it. If you are someone who feels particularly called to this, it costs about $25,000. That helps us get the machine. And then what Elizabeth was talking about, that training, uh, that's what kind of helps to, you know, it, it may vary with that training because ultimately, if we just give the folks a machine and they don't know how to operate it. It's just <laughs> it's a, a paperweight weight that's yeah. just sitting there. So, uh, but we want to partner with any Southern Baptist. We want to partner with any Christian. Um, I, I mean, anyone who wants to give to save lives, let's do it. And let's do it through the Psalm 139 Project. And just to, just to give a little anecdote, uh, when you mentioned I was over in Jackson uh, with Governor Lee, I asked the center there, hey, you know, uh, do you have any other machines here that potentially in the future we could partner with? And uh, the gentleman who's the founder of the center, he walked me back to uh, room number two, and he said, this machine right here, uh, it's pretty old. It probably could be replaced, uh, but it just crossed a major milestone. It had saved 1,000 babies' lives. Yeah. Like, well, that, that was the question I was going to ask. What's, what's the yeah. number? I mean, just think of the lives saved by this. Yeah. It's incredible. So, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, we're getting toward the end of the year. And a lot of churches, I, I know, I mean, I've seen it. I've talked to every pastor, almost every pastor I've talked to. A lot of churches running way above budget this year. Mm. Giving has been really strong. Uh, we we had a, um, a LifeWay research project just came out recently toward the end of November that talked about how strong giving had been in churches this mm. year on the back side of COVID. We've seen it with Annie. We've seen it with Lottie. We've seen it with CP as well. I'm saying if if a church has $25,000 over budget this year, mm-hmm. that they've got a quote-unquote laying around, I know there are things to do. There aren't many things that are going to save more lives than maybe going and finding a local pregnancy center, partnering with the Psalm 139 Project, and getting an ultrasound in your local community. Think how that could change your community. The thousand lives saved mm-hmm. with just the simple partnering to provide an ultrasound machine right. in a local crisis pregnancy center. And let, let me say, Elizabeth, let me let me ask you this. So, and and just to clarify, through your cooperative program dollars, the ERLC we advocate for life. So yeah. you're you're already in yeah. partnership with us, and we are so thankful for our pastors and churches that allow us to do that and be advocates in the public square for life. The Psalm 139 Project, that's just a ministry that we feel called to do. That is separate. No no CP dollars go into that program. That is, hey, if you want to partner with us, uh, we want to do it. And so, Elizabeth, this is so important. Why? Because we place these machines, and what is the feedback that we're receiving from these uh, pregnancy resource clinics that we're partnering with? They say when a woman sees this child on the screen, they are how many more times likely to save the life of that child? 80%. Gosh, that's a great winning percentage. Yeah. I mean, let's do that. I, that you'd, you'd be like a pro in baseball. Yeah. You know? oh, I mean, <laughs> you'd, you'd be an all-time record about 80, setter. About 80%. Yeah, exactly. Or 800, you know? Uh, so, I mean, this is, this is just a phenomenal way to partner. And gosh, we'd love to do it with anybody. Yes. 
So and and hey, if you got six hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars laying around, you can do all twenty-five of the other twenty-five they're wanting to do. Woo! So you man, know. <laughs> man, get me excited over here, That's Jonathan. Exactly right. Yeah, we we will take any of it. But I would mention, you know, we have some uh, exciting opportunity coming up as well because we feel so strongly in the ministry uh, of Psalm one thirty-nine and. We are doing a Giving Tuesday campaign, which is going to be um, our end of year campaign that will focus on raising funds for Psalm 139. So again, just come back to, you don't have to be able to give $26,500. You could give $10. You could give $5. Like any amount uh, is it going to be extremely helpful. And all of that will go towards the Psalm 139 um, project. But you can also find out more about that through erlc.com forward slash life, or you can also go to erlc.com slash 50 by 50. And that's referencing our campaign to place 50 machines by row 50. Yeah. So just to recap, through the Psalm 139 project, the ERLC is placing 50 ultrasounds by the 50th of row V. Wade in 2023. So we've done 25 already. Got 25 to go. Um, so this Giving Tuesday, as Elizabeth just mentioned, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the day it drops on the 29th, on November the 30th, on Giving Tuesday, they're going to start their uh, big year-end initiative. You can help them place the next machine and and many more by donating at erlc.com slash 50 by 50. That's erlc.com slash 50 by 50. And once again, 100% of the donations of the Psalm 139 project go entirely to placing ultrasound machines in pregnancy centers. You can find out more and donate at erlc.com slash 50 by 50. Yeah, no, a 50 by 50. Gosh, what a gospel opportunity, actually. I mean, that's the thing. I, that's that's probably an underappreciated point of this. We are obviously and rightfully so focusing in on saving those lives. But these pregnancy resource clinics uh, that we partner with, they often were either started by a church or they're currently with a church or they are a ministry of the church. And they are wrapping their arms around these women and these families that are in unexpected situations. They are in crisis situations. They are in situations where the, I did not realize this is where I was going to be. And they are there being the hands and feet in Jesus for these women, for these families. And, and gosh, what an opportunity to partner with them. All right. So uh, again, just to kind of recap today, big week this week. You've got uh, Giving Tuesday tomorrow. If you're listening to this when it drops on Monday, you've got Giving Tuesday tomorrow. Be a part of what's going on in the Psalm 139 project. Wednesday, you've got Supreme Court arguments. Chelsea, tell us a little bit about the kind of the content and stuff you guys will be putting out regarding that and where people can find out more about that. Absolutely. So folks can always go to erlc.com to check out our latest um, but uh, this week in particular, um, we will actually be outside the Supreme Court. Um, there's a big rally happening, so we will uh, be there and we will be sharing um, content in the moment um, from the Supreme Court. Also, um, on December 6th, so we intentionally scheduled this event for after oral arguments, um, I'm going to be moderating a panel with Elizabeth Graham, Herbie Newell of Lifeline Children's Services, and Denise Harrell from our friends over at Alliance Defending Freedom. And we're going to be having a discussion about what happened, what was said during oral arguments, kind of 
tea leaf reading, what do we think based off of what was said, the questions that were asked, you know, how are we feeling um, afterwards? So the title of that event is Will Row Go? It is a free virtual event. People can go to our website to sign up for that as well. Yeah, I was going to mention that as well. So yeah, so if you're paying attention to the the oral arguments later this week after the podcast drops, be sure to join Chelsea, Elizabeth, Herbie, and the folks over at Alliance Defending Freedom for that event next Monday. That is on December the 6th, and you can uh, join them for that just to kind of get a recap of everything. So hopefully if you get you got your pregame through this podcast, you've got, you know, the, I guess you call it the game later in the week with the oral arguments starting on Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you've got the postgame coverage with Chelsea and Elizabeth uh, next week. So be sure to check those out. And follow along on social media as well, because we'll be sharing kind of live in the moment what's happening play-by-play uh, play on December 1 as well. Yep, and, and Chelsea will be outside the Supreme Court on the steps there, I guess. Uh, and Chelsea, I'm hoping for good weather. Hopefully for it's you, not too cold. For your case. Yeah, for your sake, <laughs> exactly. I'm hoping for good weather. So that, that's been the, the whole thing about the, uh, the March for Life the past few years, it's, or every year, I guess. It's like, just let us have a, a nice, you know, 40-degree day and not 20 in snowy or 20 in rainy or something like that. Well, that that week in particular, I mean, this is part of the the incredible work that Elizabeth Graham does for us uh, as our vice president of Life Initiatives. Uh, That whole week, the entire pro-life movement is just going to be singing from the the same songbook. Uh, And and we're all going to be talking about the dignity of life, uh, the preciousness of preborn lives, uh, how preborn lives are made in God's image, and and why the Supreme Court needs to take this opportunity. And so Elizabeth does that. She is heading up efforts left and right to to build coalitions throughout the pro-life movement. And so she's going to be up there in D.C. with Chelsea. I'm going to be up there. We're just getting the whole gang together right up there on the steps of the Supreme Court. It's going to be a good day. Awesome. All right. Well, sounds good. And again, folks, uh, erlc.com slash standforlife or erlc.com slash 50 by 50. You can help be a part of all that's going on in the ERLC and how they are fighting for preborn lives across the country. And uh, do be in prayer for the oral arguments this week. And, you know, we, we look forward to, to kind of next week and Chelsea and Elizabeth on their event. Be sure to sign up for that uh, to kind of get the recap of everything. So thanks again for joining us today. Elizabeth, Chelsea, Brent, we really appreciate it. Uh, any final thoughts? Closing thoughts, I'm sure you've got something to add here at the end. Chelsea, we'll start with you. Jonathan, thank you so much for having this conversation and and for having us. I would just say uh, two final thoughts. Um, Like I said earlier, the ERLC submitted a brief on this case, and we are advocating um, through the judiciary, but we are also advocating um, in the public square and with Congress. You know, as we're wrapping up uh, legislatively uh, this year, um, you know, Congress has to pass a budget and um, the reconciliation bill. And we're also advocating for things like the inclusion of the, the life-saving Hyde Amendment. Um, so, so while we're awaiting uh, the court's decision, we're continuing our advocacy in as many avenues as possible. So I just, I want listeners to know um, how the ERLC is advocating for life um, in Washington, D.C. and in the public square. All right. Elizabeth? Thanks, Jonathan. I just want to build on what Chelsea said. So at the ERLC, we are unashamedly pro-life, and we have aligned all of our life work under the umbrella of Stand for Life. We're going to be talking about this in the coming days, just some exciting um, opportunities uh, to equip and engage the church to provide resources for our Southern Baptist pastors and church leaders as we seek to help 
equip them as they defend the most vulnerable um, among us in our society, as well as continuing to point out the inherent dignity of every person and also uh, as we seek to protect and defend uh, preborn children. And I think really what this allows us to do at the ERLC is because we are so unashamedly pro-life, because we want to see uh, vulnerable um, moms, vulnerable families, vulnerable children um, served, and also preborn babies saved, this allows us to be a consistent voice for life, both like Chelsea said, in terms of the courtroom, um, whether they're doing, whether she's working on Capitol Hill, and in our culture, and we desire to partner with churches and stand together as we advocate and stand for life. And Brent? Well, Elizabeth said it best, stand for life. And, you know, Southern Baptists, we are, we are a people of life, and we've got a long track record of standing for life, right? I think back to the resolutions in 1982 and 84 that, that talk about the, the sin of abortion and the cooperative uh, way that we as Southern Baptists are, are to work together. And then most recently, uh, this past June, uh, a resolution on abortion calling for an abolition uh, of abortion. We want to work hard for that day. And and your ERLC has, has been doing that because we know and we live uh, as if Psalm 139 is true. And it is true. And so we we go out and we uh, appeal to policymakers to to see the dignity of each and every preborn life, and and we want our laws uh, that protect lives to be extended to those preborn lives. And so that this is a this is a gigantic opportunity in front of the Supreme Court, and um, you know, but we're also a people of prayer. We need to be praying for this, not just in the moment for these oral arguments, but throughout the spring and into. Uh, early next summer when the decision is released. And, and so we'll have a prayer guide actually for uh, the oral argument day that we'll, we'll release uh, this week. And then um, I would just say this. Uh, I think a lot of us, we are excited about the possibility of Roe versus Wade finally being overruled and, and Casey uh, saying being overruled. Uh, y'all, the work will only have just begun if that is the case. Yeah. Uh, both, it's not the end goal. No, uh, both it's Elizabeth and Chelsea talked about this. Uh, at that point, it goes down to the state level and Southern Baptists buckle in uh, because we are already thinking through what does a 50-state strategy look like? I mean, to take, to take Elizabeth's example, a conversation with a legislator or governor here in Tennessee looks a lot different than that same kind of conversation to happen with a legislator or a governor in Illinois. Uh, and so we want to equip uh, Christians to help them understand the nuances of that, how to navigate it, and how to go in there and effectively appeal for life and and just keep moving the ball forward uh, to save lives in, in your backyard. We are so thankful uh, that, that churches have called us to this. We think it is a huge privilege uh, to carry this forward in the public square. And, uh, and Jonathan, I'm, I'm grateful to be in cooperation with folks just like you to do this. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chelsea, Elizabeth, Brent. We really appreciate having you guys on the podcast for this special episode here of SBC this week. Again, you can find out more erlc.com slash standforlife or erlc.com slash 50 by 50. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.